Father, thank you that we can meet with you here. Sometimes it slips our attention that the God of the universe has come close in this time of worship, but we just pray that as you speak to us through your word, that we would have open ears and that it would be your voice that we hear and no other voice, that you'd silence every distraction, that you would keep any words from being said that aren't according to your will and your word. Lord, transform our lives. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray, in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. As Andy walked into the hospital, he went up to the baby unit and he went to where he had seen his son just a day or two before. But as he went there and he he looked at one baby and then another baby, no, that wasn't the right one. He remembered his baby had little bits of red hair and no, there was no John. Where was John? He couldn't see John in any of the beds. And so he went and he asked the nurses, well, where, where is John? What, what happened to John? He said, oh, John's gone. John's not here anymore. How could this be? You see, Andy, it was a mistake. Unfortunately, he had made a mistake with John's mom, and that was the result of this child. But he still loved this child, and he He wanted this child to be a part of his life, but John wasn't there anymore. So he left the hospital, and he had been told by the parents that he could have no contact whatsoever with the mother. Within a few days, or maybe it was a week, he discovered that John had been adopted, He was adopted by a a kind family. I'll put a picture up, actually, of the adopted mom of of little John. Andy didn't know this at the time, but John was adopted by Eileen, and Eileen and her husband raised little John, and this was in 1970. But Andy wanted to be able to have contact with his son. He wanted to be able to have a relationship with his son, and this was taken away from him. He went to the adoption office, and he asked them, could you please track down my son so that I can contact my son? But this was actually in Great Britain, and they had rules and laws about the fact that when a child is adopted, the only way for there to be contact with the child's real parents, is for the child to pursue that contact. For Andy, it felt like separation was permanent, like there was no possibility for them to get back together. Within a few years, he remarried. Uh, He got married, I guess, to Hazel in a couple years, and I'll put up a picture of some of the other children that were a part of their family, and he, in fact, fostered with Hazel. They were married for 45 years. They, they fostered about 15 different children. And he got to teach child after child how to ride a bike, how to, how to swim. But each and every time, he said, when, when the training wheels came off the bike and that child took off on the bike, there was this little twinge of sadness inside of him. What about John? I should be doing this for my son. Why can't I be there as a father for my son? It's heartbreaking to him, though he had this happy marriage, to be separated from John. You can only imagine the heartache of God as he thinks about you and I who are his children when we harden our hearts, when we turn away 
from Him. You know, this is the entire goal of the prayer that we've looked at for several weeks in John chapter 17. We took a break from it last year to hear some fantastic stories about Adventist World Radio. And wasn't that inspiring to hear all the ways that that God's Word is going forward in, in places where people can't go, missionaries can't be there. It's inspiring to hear those stories, but we're going to go back to John's chapter 17 today where we've been seeing that Jesus is our intercessor in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary and that he is praying on your and my behalf and the things that he's asking for are beautiful. He's asking for us to recognize the character of the Father. He's asking for us to, we're going to see some other things today, but go with me to John chapter 17. As we go there, I just wanted to put up a little commentary from a letter. It's recorded in the Spalding and Magan collection, page 137. It says this about this chapter, John chapter 17. It says, God's family on earth have many lessons to learn in order to answer the prayer of Christ. So as we read this prayer, we recognize that there are parts of it that have not been answered. And why is that? A lot of it has to do with us and our own hearts, that some of it hasn't been answered yet. His last prayer with his disciples before his humiliation, and then it says this, the 17th chapter of John, which contains this prayer, comprehends more than any other chapter in the New Testament. As I've been reading and rereading this chapter, I really believe this is true. It expresses the heart of God, the longing of Father and Son, Holy Spirit, for closeness to you and I. It comprehends the entire great controversy. It shows us pictures of who God is in beautiful ways. So today, as we look at this one last time, I encourage you not to stop here, but to keep looking at this chapter. I encourage you to consider... uh, committing it to memory, taking time to listen to it again and again. But we're going to look starting in verse 20. This is the part of the prayer that that we know that this prayer applies to us. We know that this prayer is important for us. But here we get a clear sign that this prayer is directly for you and for I as we sit here, as we stand here in Templeton Hills Church this morning. John chapter 17 and verse 20 says, I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that talking about? I'm sorry, I I actually wanted to answer those questions. Who is that talking about? Us. It's talking about believers. Because you and I only know the story of the gospel based on what the disciples went and shared in that oral tradition that was passed down, and then all of the scriptures that have been written, we've read about it, we've heard about it. It's all based on the words that came through the disciples, how they recorded what Jesus had said. So this is a prayer that's specifically for you and I. As Jesus looked down and he saw he knew you were going to be sitting here in Templeton Hills, 7th Avenue Church on February 10, that you would have the things going on in your life that you have going on today. When he thought about you and he wanted to pray for you, this is what he prayed for you. So just pay close attention to it because it's beautiful. Verse 21, that they all may be, what does it say? One. <laughs> That's Jesus' heart for you today. That's what he, he was praying for. That's what the, the all of heaven is, is interested in, is that we would be one, that they all may be one, as you, Father, 
are in me. Okay, so he's describing what this oneness looks like. And he's described to the disciples back in chapter 14 how he doesn't speak on his own initiative, but whatever the Father dwelling in him wants to say, he says. There's this closeness between Jesus and the Father, this oneness, and he wants that same oneness to be the reality that you and I experience, not just with him, but with each other. That, that they would be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in And then there's a purpose for this oneness. He wants for this oneness to take place, the same beautiful oneness. And we talked about how the Trinity throughout eternity, the Godhead has experienced this joyful unity, this delightful fellowship throughout eternity. Verse 24 tells us that, that they loved each other from the, before the foundation of the world. They shared this love and this joy throughout eternity. He wants that specifically for us to be made one in Him together for a specific reason that the world, verse 21 continues, that the world may believe that you sent me. This is powerful. It's saying, I want for them to have closeness. I want for them to to have unity. I want for them to be as close as you, Father, and I are one. I want them to have that same love for each other that, that regards the other's needs as more important than their own. I want for them to experience that in their lives because when they experience that, the entire world, as they look at that church and they see their love for God, they see their love for each other, they're going to see that and they're going to say, Jesus really did come. This is to those who believe based on the words of the disciples, those who didn't get to see Jesus walking on this planet, how will they believe? How will our neighbors believe? How will our family believe? How will our coworkers at work believe? When they see that we are one. When we have that closeness. When we share that love. Jesus said it in another way in the upper room in John 13, 35. He said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love. When you have that love for each other, when you share that love, that love in itself is a miracle. It's something that is strove, that, that we strive for in so many different parts of the world. And yet that the world comes up empty again and again. Jesus, and Jesus alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to so fill us with himself and with that love that we can become one and that the world will know that he came. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it powerful that this is Jesus' primary concern as he's going to the cross, as he's praying for you and I, as he's praying for the disciples, the thing that he wants to ask more than anything else is that we would be united. And he goes on to, to describe what that unity looks like. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Now that glory we saw in Exodus chapter 34, that glory is the character of God. God who is gracious and merciful, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. That, those attributes of his character as they become a part of our lives. A couple weeks ago, we looked at how he prayed for us to be sanctified by the truth. Thy word is truth. As the truth comes in and transforms our lives, as we recognize what he's called us to, that love unites us. That patience unites us. Those attributes of his character, as they become a part of our lives through the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they unite us 
and the world is amazed by it. That's the picture that you get here. Verse 23 continues, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. As this unity occurs, as togetherness occurs, it's going to reveal to the world, Jesus says, number one, that you sent me, and number two, that you love your people. We looked at John, 7, uh, John 16 and verse 27 that says the Father himself loves you. The Father himself likes you. We saw how it, that refers to just his adoration, his, his being crazy about you, wanting to live eternity with you. And here Jesus is saying that will be revealed to the world in the most beautiful and powerful way when we are united. Now that sounds like such a beautiful thing, but let's admit, from the time we're kids, this can be extremely difficult. And I've shared before about my brother, he's seven and a half years older than me, that we didn't always get along growing up. There were a lot of differences. I remember when he would draw a line in the middle of the car, and and if I crossed that line, I was in big trouble. There would be an arm that would come down, and I would be in a lot of serious pain. And I just wanted somebody to play with. But I was really, really annoying looking back on it. I was somebody that I wouldn't have wanted to play with. But from the time we're little, this ideal that Jesus is calling us to of oneness, of closeness, is something that from the time we're just little kids is something so difficult to have in our lives. But here's the thing. God is clearly calling us to be a part of allowing God to answer Jesus' prayer in the last days. There's something very powerful in Malachi chapter 4 that I'd like to look at today. Knowing this prayer of Jesus and knowing that, that His heart's cry, His heart's desire for you and me is that we would be one as He and the Father are one, that we would love each other, that we would have a, a concern for each other's needs. Look with me to the last book in the Old Testament, the last chapter, some of the last words that were spoken before a time period of about 400 years that are called the years of silence, before you find the beginning of the Gospels. Go with me to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. Malachi chapter 4 begins by describing how there's going to come a destruction of the wicked, that they're going to be completely burned up, that there's not going to be anything left of them. But then it it gives this this sign of hope, this sign of mercy in verse 2. It says, but to you who fear my name. Now here's the first indication that, that this is a glimmer of a last day message. Because what is Revelation 14? six start off with says to fear god and give him glory right this is the last day message that's to go to the whole world starts off talking about having a reverence and awe a total surrender for god in fearing god so here it says but to you who fear specifically what my name and we talked about how in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 that, that he says, I'm going to make my name pass before you. I'm going to declare my goodness to you. So his name is attached to his goodness. 
And his goodness is that he's merciful and gracious, abounding in, 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 in goodness and truth and, and forgiving iniquity and sin and, and by no means clearing the guilty. He's a God of justice and a God of mercy. And there's no conflict whatsoever between those two things. So to those who reverence that name, who have an appreciation for my character, who adore who I am, for those in the last days who accept this message to fear God and give Him glory, to those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in His wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Wait a second here. This is not a verse that, that many of us want to read. <laughs> it will grow fat like stall-fed calves. Now, I've read some commentators that, that are kind of baffled by exactly what this Hebrew phrase means. But put it this way, when a cow gets to eat and he's happy, and, and it's a picture of, of joyfulness that comes from the healing power of this son of righteousness. We'll skip over verse 3, which again talks about the destruction of the wicked. This is kind of going back and forth between God, what he wants to do, and the destruction of the wicked. We don't have time to look at all of that today, but go down to verse 4. So here is, is describing how this healing through the Son of Righteousness is going to take place. In verse 4, it starts off saying this, Remember the what? What does it say? Wait a second. Remember the law of Moses? How does this bring healing? How does, why does this son of righteousness, what, why is the law of Moses so important? It's pretty fascinating that, that this comes right at the end of the Old Testament. And recently I heard somebody talking about how the most problematic page in our Bible is the one that separates the New Testament from the Old Testament. And he was saying he was tempted actually to tear out that page because it leads us to conclusions about the discontinuity between Old and New Testament when in reality, the bridge between them is incredibly clear. It's, it's a continuation. It's all Scripture that's God-breathed. So here it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Now Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. So he's talking about when Moses went, and first of all, he received the Ten Commandments beginning in Exodus 19 and written down in Exodus chapter 20. And he's talking about also all of the laws that were given for the the ritual laws and and talking about all the different things for their civil laws and all the things for their their health laws. He's, He's talking about this law of Moses, which I commanded to him in Mount Sinai with the statutes and judgments. And verse 4 is this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This was a fascinating prophecy to Israelites as they read this and they realized that that God was going to send a messenger at the end. And, And many of them believed, well, hey, Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot. And since he was taken up in a fiery chariot, He'll just actually come down and he's going to start preaching. And this is the message that he's going to bring to us. But we'll look at in a minute how that's not the full picture of what the Bible presents of of what Elijah would do. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's, That's a picture of which coming of Christ? First coming of Christ? Great and dreadful day of the Lord? 
you're both right. <laughs> it really has a picture of both in it. But there's, there's, a, there's a clear uh, connotation here of the second coming, that, that magnificent coming of Christ here. But look at verse 6, the last verse in all of the Old Testament. And it's so important for us to recognize. This message that was going to come says this, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. You don't look in awe of it, and that's okay. I've just been thinking a lot about this, and I think it's such a powerful picture of what God wants to do as he's wrapping up this Old Testament picture. He goes through, and at the very end, he says, remember the law, remember this whole story, remember all of this, and I'm going to send somebody, and what is he going to do? What's, what's the picture of what this prophet's going to do? There's a turning of hearts between people. The turning of a father's heart to the heart of children. This, this bringing of unity together. The same exact thing that we just saw that Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer, that they would be made one. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi is prophesying, saying there's going to come somebody who's going to prophesy in such a way that it's going to bring people together. God is very concerned about our relationships in every aspect of our lives. He's very concerned if we look through the Old Testament, the New Testament about marriage and the value of marriage. And we're going to begin a series starting next week on Sabbath looking at relationship goals and looking really practically at the value of relationships and the way that God has given us principles that can transform our marriages our families, our parenting, that can transform our friendships, and even how we deal with our enemies. Here you see that God is intensely interested in our relationships, that he wants to send this message before the very end that will turn hearts back to each other. So you imagine that 400 years later, they call it the 400 years of silence, Zechariah, when he's there in the temple and he's there offering his, the incense, suddenly this angel appears and he's wanted a child and the angel terrifies him, though he should have recognized that he was on the right side of the altar indicating a, a message that was favorable to him. But go with me to Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. In Luke chapter 1, Luke actually is quoting directly from Malachi here as as this description of what Gabriel is describing that the child will be like. Describing what Zachariah's child, which would be who? John the Baptist. Making sure we're tracking here. So we're talking about Zacharias, who had the son, John the Baptist. And he's describing what this child would be like. And in this description of what this child will be like, let's actually start in verse 16. This is describing what John the Baptist would be like. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So there's a turning of heart to where first? To God. And then second of all, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
here Gabriel is saying the Elijah message is going to take place with John the Baptist. That John the Baptist is going to have this. And it quotes from just part of that chapter that we just read. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, sometimes in reading this, there, there is a, a, a metaphorical interpretation of this turning of the hearts from the fathers to the children and saying, well, this is the children turning back to the religion of the fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and that may be here, but when you look at Malachi chapter 4, it's really clear that it says, and the hearts of the fathers to the children. So it, it doesn't apply in that way, does it? it? In order for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be turning their hearts to the children, that wouldn't be possible. So this is literally describing an enhancement, a beautification of relationships. That relationships are going to be united. That this last day message is going to come to prepare the way of the Lord. And in preparing the way of the Lord, it's going to restore relationships. And this is exactly what you find John the Baptist doing. Go over to Luke chapter 3. And you just imagine that you were an Israelite at this time, and they're constantly looking for the Messiah. And suddenly this loud voice starts to cry out from the wilderness, and he's dressed in camel's hair. He's, he's this guy who's been living in the wilderness, living a simplistic life that he reminds you of the prophets. And as you hear him preaching, you're just compelled to go and to listen to this message. And these are the kinds of things that he's saying. In Luke chapter 3, It describes, first of all, that he came in verse 4 as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So he's coming to prepare the way for the first coming of Jesus. And how does he do that? Verse 7, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, and just imagine, why would you go to hear somebody preach like this? Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Oh, that makes me feel real happy and excited. To, to, I'm just going to go home and chew on that over Sabbath lunch, because that was just a beautiful message. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist had an urgent message. He recognized that that they were in danger of missing Jesus, and he didn't want them to miss it. And in saying this, he's he's pointing out to them that, that you are buying into the lies of the serpent. You as Jesus said in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil. You're, you're, you're buying into his system, you're believing his concepts. You you go about trying to act righteous. But in reality, you have the same principles of selfishness in your heart. In Matthew 23, Jesus goes through step by step with the Pharisees and, and says, you know, you're whitewashed tombs. You, you, on the one hand, say that you are dedicating your funds to, to God, but on the other hand, you don't honor your father and mother with those same funds. You, you tithe the, the mint and the cumin on your plants, but you neglect justice and mercy and and faith, those things that you should have put primary and not neglected your tithing. They had, had, had made religion selfish. They made it about them. They had 
put walls to keep people from coming too close. They'd put up even barriers within the temple so that Gentiles couldn't get too close. They had the court of the Gentiles and the, the court of the Israelites. They, they kept a separation. They pushed people away from God. And it was all about them and their own selfish desires and their understanding of truth. And in my life, I can come close to that same exact problem if I know my Bible so well that I can prove everybody wrong, but I don't love them. (laughs) And I don't really care about what's going on in their lives. I can be in the same exact danger that, that maybe the John the Baptist would actually come to me and say, you, you're son of a viper. You're just like your father, the devil. You're, you're buying into a system of selfishness and, and you're not caring about the widow and the orphan. You're, you're just living based on his principles and not based on God who is love. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But look at how John the Baptist unpacks this message. We know from looking at, at Bible prophecy that, that this message, we saw that this comes before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, that it's twofold. It came in John Baptist, but it's also a message that comes right before the second coming, right before that glorious judgment day when Jesus comes back in the cloud. So this is very pertinent for you and I because we are on the of Jesus' second coming. So this same message is something that is to come to us and something that we are to share with the world. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 11 that, that there is still Elijah to come. That, that, that on the one hand, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but there's also coming an Elijah. There is an Elijah message at the end that will turn hearts of children to fathers and fathers to children that will bring a unity and a love, a beautiful answering of Jesus' prayer that we could all be one so that the world could believe that Jesus really came and that the Father really loves us. That same message is to to take place in our day. So what was it that John the Baptist physically told the Israelites when they came to him? Go in verse 8 of chapter 3. It says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid at the root. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see this, what John the Baptist is concerned about, and what you and I need to be concerned about before the second coming of Jesus is are we letting Jesus bear fruit in our lives? And what does that look like? He goes on to say this, verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? John, this is terrifying. You're calling us brood of vipers. You're saying that we need to repent. So so what then do I do? How do I go about experiencing what you're talking about? What does fruit look like in my life? So John just breaks it down for them. Verse 11, he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, that's the clothes that they wore, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Hey, start sharing what you have with other people. This is what it looks like to bear fruit. This is what the message means when lived out in your lives. 
Start sharing with the people around you. Love the people around you. This is what the gospel will really look like. Verse 12 continues, Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? So of course he told them to stop being tax collectors, didn't he? To just leave behind their profession? No, verse 13. And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Start being honest in your business transactions. Treat the people with respect. Deal with them honestly. Don't steal from them. Continues verse 14. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, so this is an amazing thing. Maybe the the Roman soldiers came up to him and said, oh, this is an amazing message, John. So how do we experience this? What does it look like for us? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Do you see what this message was all about? It was intensely practical, and it was about turning hearts towards each other, and anything that got in the way of the love that God wanted for them to be sharing, he was calling out. And John the Baptist was incredibly bold about this. He knew God so well that he wasn't afraid to to rebuke kings themselves. You look at what he goes on to say to Herod in verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by John the Baptist, this is concerning Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. We think of John the Baptist as this amazing reformer who came speaking truth and that that we need to do the same thing. At least I've recognized that in my life. You know, God is calling me to take the Word of God, to share it with people in such a way that they recognize the need to repent. But notice what that message does and what the priorities were in that message. It was to share with others. It was to be good in our business, honest in our business transactions. And it was to be careful about our relationships, even our intimate relationships. He looks at Herod and he says, hey, that's not right. You need not to be stealing your brother's wife. This is not okay. That's what the spirit and power of Elijah looks like. It looks like a message that comes that says, hey, God is love and what you're doing isn't loving. So you need to just, what he goes on to say, look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You need to be baptized, that representation of dying to your old self and coming up as a new man in Christ. You need to let God bear in you good fruits. And those fruits look like not disrespecting the marriage of somebody else. It looks like drawing close together father's hearts being turned towards children and children's hearts being turned towards father's. It looks like sharing our goods with with those who are in need. It looks like not oppressing those that we deal with in our business interactions. These are the essential things that God is calling us to as we are on the very verge of the second coming. That's what God wants for you and I to experience. And we see this because the message comes in John chapter 14 that we should fear God and give Him glory. And then it goes on to say, here are those who keep the commandments of Jesus, keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus.
Jesus. That reference back again to that law of Moses. But let's go back really quick to Malachi chapter 4. And we're going to look here at how this takes place. We're going to go back to chapter 4 and verse 2. We saw, first of all, it starts with a promise, but to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Friends, this beautiful picture of drawing together in unity only comes through the Son of Righteousness, who is Jesus Christ. And the sun doesn't always rise in the morning in dramatic ways. I remember recently I was out on a backpacking trip, woke up early in the morning, hopped out of my tent, and it was freezing cold outside. So I put on gloves, I put on a hat, I put on jacket, I put on a sweater, as many layers as I could find in my backpack to try to stay warm. And I'm just watching up on the hillside as, as the sun begins to first hit the top of the hill. And I'm thinking, if only I could be on top of that hill right now, I could be warm. And then it begins to come down the mountain peaks and it's getting lower and lower. And I'm just anticipating when is the sunlight finally going to hit me. And when it finally gets a little bit lower, it's starting to hit the tops of the treetops near me. It's a gradual process of light being shed throughout this planet. This is the picture that Malachi is using of the sun of righteousness arising. And he has healing in his wings. That Jesus is coming to bring restoration, to bring healing. You notice when Jesus asked for us to be made one, he didn't say, so Lord, inspire, just tell them that they need to do what's right. But he said, I want to live in them, and I want you to live in me, and together we'll be one with the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. The Son of Righteousness, Jesus, is the one who takes away the sin of the world, who brings healing into our lives. And today you may be thinking, this all sounds great, but if you knew what my marriage was like, if you knew the conversations that we had on the way to church today, then this message is hard to hear. But I have good news for you. It's the Son of Righteousness who arises with healing in His wings. It's as Jesus comes into your marriage that that healing is going to take place. It's the Word of God. It has creative power and it will transform our lives. You may be thinking, well, yeah, that's great. The hearts of the Father being turned to the hearts of the Son. But my children have totally turned their back on me. God's not done with them. Keep praying. Keep loving them. Keep reaching out to them. Just recently, I've seen it take place where somebody had been praying for 10 years. Actually, Don Heiss came up here and shared just a couple months ago about his kids and how he'd been praying earnestly for them and the miracles that God is working and turning their hearts back. This is the last day message. This is what God is longing to do in these last days. This is the importance of the commandments of God. He starts this off by saying, remember the law of Moses. And we are to point people to the Ten Commandments, which point us to loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and to loving the people around us as Christ has loved us. That's the whole picture. Jesus, in Matthew 7 and verse 12, he, he sums up the entire Old Testament by saying, whatsoever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Jesus came to restore, to bring healing to our relationships. 
And I began to see this in my own relationship with my brother as I experienced conversion in my own heart, and I think he probably experienced some growing up in his own heart. And, and I grew up a little bit, so maybe it helped that I wasn't quite as annoying anymore. But we began to become friends. And when I was at PUC, we would, Leah and I would, when we had a free weekend, just drive the two hours over near Sacramento to where he lived. And we'd spend the weekend hanging out with he and Sheena Lynn and, and their little son Daniel. We loved to spend time together. And that relationship began to develop to the place where when I got married, you know how it goes once you're planning the wedding, as Mark and Linda know very well right now, planning out all the details of a wedding, you begin to look at, well, who's going to be my, my groomsmen? Who are going to be my bridesmaids? As, as I was trying to think, well, who could be my best man? It was a no-brainer. I chose my brother because he was my best friend. He's become that close friend that, that I couldn't find anywhere else. He was somebody that I could trust in, and I just wanted to put up a picture at our wedding. Here you see it's just after our wedding, and we're here in a room, we're taking pictures, and if you look closely, if you can see, what am I thinking about? I'm just looking at my wife, because <laughs> she's beautiful. I just got married. This is like the most happy moment of my life. But notice, this is my brother in front of me. If he hadn't have been my best man, I don't know what would have happened to that marriage certificate. <laughs> he was the one guarding it and signing it and taking care of all of it. He was the one who made sure I got the vows. I remember in the hour before the wedding, I was nervous. My heart's beating and I'm just there kind of pacing around. And my brother was there to say, hey, just enjoy it. <laughs> don't worry. And those words just kept re-echoing through my mind. You see, God is about restoring relationships. I've experienced that with my brother, and I'm so thankful for all of the support that he has given me in my relationships. There's a beautiful thing that happens, and we all long for it. We long for it in our marriages. We long for it in our family. We long for it with our children. And so that's why I'm so excited that we're going to go through this seven-week series focused on the principles of relationships from the Bible. And it's going to be very practical. We're going to go through each of these things and we're going to look at solutions. And, and Leah is going to hopefully be sharing with me and a lot of it so that we can get a, a, a good perspective. And you may feel like, well, hey, I'm not married, so what does that have to do with me? But no, it's going to be incredibly valuable for all relationships in our lives because all of us at least have friends or all of us at least have enemies, I'm sure. And one way or another, these relationship principles will apply to you, but not just to you. It's vital that we share this Elijah message with the world. As you leave today, I want to invite you to pick up a card, and there's, there, there'll be flyers out in the lobby, an opportunity just for you to take and to share these things with your neighbor, with a friend. Maybe there's been somebody that you've thought, I'd love to invite them to church but I don't want to invite them to a prophecy seminar because they're not in, interested in prophecy. Some people need a different entering gate to learn about Jesus, and this could be it for that person. This could be the opportunity for them to learn about relationships and to see how all of that ties into this beautiful picture of the gospel and of the Ten Commandments and how God wants to write his law in our hearts and lead us to love each other. So as you leave today, I encourage you to take a flyer to pass it out to somebody. Take a handful of them. 
And also, I want to encourage you, on the back table, there's sign-ups for different groups at different times that you can join in to a group. So we're going to have each Sabbath a message from the Bible, and then we're going to have a study guide that will be for that group where you can sit down and you can talk and you can pray together. How can we improve our relationships? Just intensely practical things because this is what it's all about. This is what Jesus has prayed for you, that you would be one as he and the Father are one. This is how the world is going to see that what you believe matters because you are one with your wife, because you are one with your husband, because you're one with your children, because there's this beautiful picture of harmony and love that the world can't buy, they they can't come up with a solution to, but that God has brought into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Andy searched for years and years, longing to find John. In fact, his wife Hazel said that there were nights when he would come to bed and they would be laying there in bed and he would just begin sobbing and she would hold him in her arms. He could not get past the fact that he had a son out there. He, all that he knew about him was that he probably had red hair and that his name might be John still. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know what had happened to him, but he just wanted to be able to hold his son in his arms. Years and years went by. John, I'll put up a picture of him here at 74 years old. This has been 37 years since 1970. Sorry, that's not the right picture. That's a different story. If you can go down, there's a picture just of that. That was a different father and son. Very cool story too. But this is, here we have Andy, 74 years old now. He has 15 foster children and about five uh, other children. And this is his wife, Hazel. Now, Hazel knew that he had this burden on his heart that he desperately wanted to find John. So one day, she went and she went on Facebook. This was back in around 2014. And she put out a notice on Facebook. And she tried to put all the details possible. And she said, share this as widely as possible. My husband is looking for his child who's probably named John. And this is the details of where he was born. Nothing. Nothing came back. They felt hopeless. They tried in every possible way to find John. And they couldn't find John. Then one night she had an idea. She recently saw a television program in Europe where they actually go and they search for long-lost family members. And having watched this, she decided that she'd stay up after Andy went to sleep. So Andy went to sleep that night and she made the application. She sent it off to the, the program, but she didn't hear anything back. A year went by and they again lost hope that there was any possibility of them ever finding John. And then finally, somebody from the program called. They said, we've been doing some research. We went and we checked on the adoption certificates and we were able to track down John who was adopted and we were able to find out his adopted father's name and we were able to track down his adopted father's, uh, his sister's name basically. And we were able to talk to her and she said that he now lives in Australia. You imagine what took place in Andy's heart. In that moment when he picked up the phone to call to Australia, that number that they'd given him, he said it was the biggest moment of his life and he wondered what would it be like? Would, would John want anything to do with him? 
But as he began to talk to, to John on the phone, he discovered that John did want to do with him. He'd had a happy life with his adopted parents, but he'd always wondered why he'd been rejected. Why he had been, did somebody just not like him? What had happened with his adopted parents? And Andy was able to tell him, look, I've literally thought about you every day. I've been searching for you this whole time. I've just wanted to find you. And finally, put a picture up where they were able to meet. You can see how happy they were. Friends, this is what God is longing to do. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. And the heart of your heavenly Father is desperately searching. Searching for children. And there are so many people out there who need what you have. There's so many people out there who don't have the peace, the joy that you and I have. So my plea this morning is, let's share it. Let's tell people in the spirit and power of Elijah that there is a Savior who is risen with healing in his wings and he wants to bring wholeness to our relationships. He wants to fill us with the Holy Spirit. He wants for us to experience his love. Would you bow Father in heaven, here we are, and we see how beautiful this is, but sometimes we're challenged because our own relationships seem so far from this. But God, I thank you for that this morning, because it leads us to see that that we don't have what it takes and we need a Savior. Thank you that it's the Son of Righteousness who brings healing to our relationships. So God, I specifically ask that you would guide us over the next seven weeks. And I want to specifically ask that if any of you are willing to pray on a daily basis over this coming series, just that the Holy Spirit would heal our relationships and heal relationships in our community through this series, that you just raise your hand, just saying, I'll daily pray that the Holy Spirit would come and would bring healing to my relationships, to the church's relationships, and to our community's relationships. Father, we're going to pray this prayer Because we know it's the prayer that Jesus prayed. That we could all be one so that the world could know you. And Lord, we also want to commit to sharing this with those around us. And maybe right now, you just want to, in the silence of your own heart, just ask God, is there somebody that I could share this with? Maybe they're not even comfortable coming to church, but maybe they're comfortable coming to a small group, to to one of these homes where they can just digest some of these relationship principles and it might help their lives. Just let Jesus impress your heart this morning with who you might share this good news with. Thank you, Jesus, that you've held nothing back from making this so available to us. That you have done whatever it took in order to Bring us this opportunity of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of being filled with your love. And God, we need it. Our country is being torn apart from the, the highest levels of government down to our own families, Lord. There is so much strife and so much tension. And God, we need healing. So we're praying that you would bring the message of Elijah to our church. We're praying that you would use us, that you would empower us with the same Holy Spirit so that we can bring this message to our community, that you would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers.
In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.